so that the filibustering begin. I rise today to begin to filibuster. I will speak until I can no longer speak. I will speak as long as it takes. I'm prepared to stand on this floor and talk about the need for this body to come together for frankly as long as I can because I know that we can come together on this issue. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. I'm not here to set any great records or to, to make a spectacle. I am simply here today to take as long as I can to explain to the American people the fact that we have got to do a lot better. Now let me just enumerate some of the reasons. We're engaged in a filibuster, a way to divert attention from what we're doing today, to obstruct, and that's what's going on today. Hello and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today we're doing something a bit different. Julie Moich and Jason Engel are local historians who, with the help of a team of volunteers, recently curated and launched an exhibit titled We Shall Remember Them, How Columbus Remembered the Great War that is Columbus, Ohio, which is on display now through April 30th, 2019 at the Columbus Historical Society. Now, this past Sunday was November 11th, the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, and I sat down with Julie and Jason in early October to discuss their careers as historians and their experiences in creating and hosting this exhibit. Now, unfortunately, my old bowling companion, James Fennessy, stubbornly doesn't live in Columbus, so he wasn't able to join us for this conversation. But the show must go on and all of that. So here's what Julie and Jason had to say. So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Julie Moich and I'm a historian. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about your academic and your professional background? Sure. So I have a accounting and operations management degree from Indiana University in Bloomington's Kelly School of Business. So I went to business school straight out of um, high school and then After I finished business school, I joined the FMP program, the financial management program at General Electric Lighting in Cleveland, Ohio. And I went through a full two years of the FMP program, graduated from that, and decided that I did not want to be a financial analyst. So I went to grad school at Kent State, initially thinking I was just going to get a master's degree in history, but then I realized very quickly that I loved it and I wanted to go sort of as far as I could go. So I finished up my PhD in 2012 in history. I'm a Civil War historian. And then I took a tenure track job at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut, where I taught for four years. And then a job opportunity for my husband brought us to Columbus in 2016. I taught for two years as an adjunct at Capital University and became involved in a variety of other sort of historical projects around the city. Over the course of that time, it became pretty clear to me that there was enough freelance work in the city of Columbus that I could sort of cobble it all together and create my own business. So in 2017, I started Paramount Historical Consulting, which is an LLC, and I contract freelance history work of a variety of different projects. And then, um, and so I've been doing that for a while now. This past August, I started as a visiting assistant professor in the Global Commerce Department at Denison University, which is a one-year position in global commerce. And they essentially wanted someone who had a business background and a humanities PhD of some kind. So because I have a history PhD and a business degree and business experience, those two things combined work for them because they are trying to teach global commerce from a humanities perspective or through a humanities lens. So I'll be there for a year, and I we'll see what happens after that. But I'm still <laughs> doing consulting work on the side as well. Oh, that's great. So, what was your what was your dissertation on? My dissertation was on Midwestern University students during the American Civil War and how they justified staying in school rather than enlisting. Mm. In the North and South, most colleges and universities emptied their classrooms and basically shut down during the Civil War. But in the Midwest, 
students stayed in a lot of places, and in particular the University of Michigan was the largest university in the nation by the end of the Civil War. Their enrollment increased. So I look at Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan. They were the only three viable state universities um, at the time of the Civil War, and how their students sort of created this rhetoric around loyalty and the relationship between education and loyalty. And my book, based on that dissertation, is under contract with Fordham University Press. So when they were, so when they came up with this rhetoric about loyalty, so were they arguing that staying in school to become better educated will help build for a stronger country? Is that kind of what they were thinking for this patriotism angle, or they how were, did they, mm-hmm. where were they going with that? They were arguing that obtaining, obtaining higher education was as equally as patriotic as fighting because they were, as you said, sort of practicing. They were preparing for this leadership role that they envisioned for themselves during Reconstruction. And the communities in which these universities are located encourage that. Instead of sort of guilting these young men about remaining, they were very excited when enrollments went up. They were very excited to see how many men showed up every fall to be students at these places. And so it really, it was a different region of the country And one of the things I'm doing for the book is looking at why that was, right? Like I've gotten to the point through the dissertation where I can explain how the men argued this or how the students felt and how the faculty members felt, but the why is what I'm currently working on. And I I contend that it has something to do with the growing significance of the Midwest's economy as a part of the national economy during the Civil War. Was it also a component of just the size of the population because we didn't need to it's one of the things that always, always comes up in my, when I'm doing survey classes on the Civil War and all of that is that the, one of the advantages that the Union had was that their population was so much higher that they didn't have to dedicate as much of their mm-hmm. population to the war effort. Mm-hmm. They were able to just kind of hold people back, so to speak, mm-hmm. to do other cool stuff like build railroads and all of that. Right. Do you think that's kind of playing a role in that? Or? Um, somewhat, but you didn't see that in New England and you didn't see that in the Mid-Atlantic mm, states. Okay. So you still saw university students pressed into service and mm. there are several important Um, studies that have been done over the last few years of the universities that were depopulated, both in the North and in the South. And the Midwest really stands out as a unique Mm. situation there. And it may have been because it was still sort of emerging out of this frontier mentality. Everything Mm. was new there. And there was a lot of emphasis on growth. Mm -hmm. There was a very small downturn economically in the beginning of the war, and then things really picked up. And in fact, Um, During 1861, 62, and 63, there was a wheat shortage in England and France, and the Midwest basically fed those countries as well. It's interesting to think that in the middle of the Civil War, we are still helping to feed the world. (laughs) That says something about the American... We're feeding the North, we're feeding the Army, and we're feeding Europe too. Yeah, the resources and all, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so you're doing, uh, you said that you have your own historic... Historic history, history-based business. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, what type of work do you do with that? You mentioned that you do cons- consulting and all that. So, what, right. what what are the type of things that you do with that? So, so far, what I basically did was I created a website that has like six functions, six services that I'm offering. And I think over time, what will happen is that I'll see what kinds of other things come my way. I'll see what else I can solicit in terms of contracts or work. And then I'll be able to narrow it down or figure out, A, what I enjoy, B, what is needed, and C, what makes money, right? Because that's why I'm doing this. So right now I've been doing indexing work, which is really fun for me. I enjoy doing indexing, which is not something that a lot of people enjoy doing. (laughs) But it's very detail-oriented, which I like. I get to use Microsoft Excel, which comes from my financial background that I enjoy. And I can do it whenever I want and wherever I want. And that's really important for me because I have two children. And so I can do an index at five in the morning in my pajamas in my office and not have to leave the house. So I like that. Other things I've done that take me out of the house, I did um, a large oral history project for Columbus School for Girls. I did 95 recorded um, video oral Mm. histories and of alumni and faculty and staff. So I did that for eight months, seven months, which was really very fun and there and then I also indexed those so went through and created a way for them to be searchable by topic so that was something that was really cool and then various speaking engagements and then the Columbus Historical Society factors into that as well because through 
the grant that I wrote to get the money for this program, there's a piece of it that will be a salary for me. Okay. For the School for Girls project, was that something that they initiated and they wanted you to do that for them for their own purposes? Or were you, was there an out a third party or was that just something that you were pursuing? And when I, when I started the business, I had been doing a lot of networking in Columbus to try to figure out the professional opportunities for a historian. So I basically, for about six months, had six to eight meetings a week. Coffee, lunch, just sit down and meet people, phone calls, whatever. Just I was building a network here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. And I went into every single one of these meetings and I basically said, I've arrived in this city, I have a history degree and a business degree. What do you see for me on the horizon? Mm -hmm. And I just listened to what people said and they sent me in a lot of different directions. It was fantastic. Everyone I met introduced me to eight more people. And so through that, over the course of sort of February through October of 2017, I interviewed for different kinds of jobs. I was able to meet a lot of different people in Columbus. One of the things I did specifically was I started attending lunches at the Columbus Metropolitan Club, which is a large organization. It's about 1,400 members. Gets together every Wednesday for lunch to hear a topic, but they conscientiously network beforehand. Mm -hmm. like, and so I just started showing up at those. At one of those lunches, I met an alum of Columbus School for Girls, and she and I really hit it off, and she brought me into the school and introduced me to the president, who interviewed me for a teaching position that I could not take because it, it conflicted with my role at Capitol. Hmm. So I pitched them for other ideas. I said, okay, it may not work for me to teach here, but I can do other things as a historian for you. So I pitched them four ideas, and they liked the idea for the oral history project. So they hired me to do that. That's really interesting because it's different. You know, in, in history, graduate programs were not taught to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's right, really that comes from my business degree. Yeah, it's interesting to right. hear you say this stuff because a lot of people that are coming out of history degrees would never think to do that kind of thing. And that's, that's, that's really interesting to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's going to be useful for people that hear this because that's... I don't know. If, I never learned that. <laughs> no, no you, yeah, you don't. You don't learn anything like that you know, right. in, in grad school or anything like that. They don't tell you how to do. Yeah. No, that all came from when I was at IU, getting my business degree. I was in Alpha Kappa Psi, which is a co-ed professional business fraternity, mm -hmm. and they taught networking and they taught all of these skills, and I have always used them. So I knew networking was going to be the way, and it's. I mean, I've been able to help on different projects. Even from, um, there was a new statue that went up in Westerville about prohibition, and I helped work on that project, and that's all just through people that I've met. So it is, it is important. Yeah, it's, and that, that actually is one of the things that has come up during doing these series of podcasts, is that because even a lot of us that are in the teaching side of history, a lot of us get our, do get our jobs through networking. Adjunct positions often come because you happen to know someone who knows the department chair of the place or something. That's how I got my first adjunct job at Columbus State was yep. that someone of, I knew one of the people that already was adju adjuncting there. Right. And so there, we get a little bit of that, but it's all very informal and ad hoc and right. all that. But I think it probably would be useful for them to be some sort of formal networking training. As there needs right. to be some kind of a professionalization course that happens in PhD programs for historians and even MA programs probably too. Um, but that's really interesting to hear. No, and I think it is important. I mean, everything from, you know, I hired someone professional to do my resume and LinkedIn page. Mm -hmm. So I hired someone to do my website. So there is a level of professionalization that I had to sort of take from my first career and implement into this new situation. Um, but it's, it's working out well. The Columbus School for Girls project introduced me to over a hundred very well connected, wonderful people. And so that has spun off into other projects. I'll be heading down to Cincinnati next month to interview members of a specific family that are tied to Columbus history for 200 years now. Hmm. And to, you know, we're talking about possibly doing a project on their family history. And those are the types of things that interest me. I want to write business histories and family histories and I want to write and I want to research and this is a way to do it. Yeah, that's great. It's also such a variety of topics that must keep it, in, mm -hmm. keep it interesting. You're not doing the same topic for the rest of your career. Right. <laughs> no, and this project at Columbus Historical Society has been great because as a Civil War historian, World War One is not something that was necessarily in my wheelhouse, Right. but I've learned a lot. Yeah, I bet. 
How about we jump over, talk to Jason for a little bit, and then you can tell me a bit about yeah. what's happening here. So, um, what is your name? What do you do? Uh, my name is Jason Engel, and I am a, uh, well, I'm currently adjuncting at Southern New Hampshire University, uh, teaching a couple classes there, mostly uh, modern war and society. My uh, background, my academic background is uh, I got my doctorate at Southern Miss in 2017, so just this past December I graduated. And my most of my emphasis throughout my academic career has been uh, uh, military history. Uh, so I, I studied, got my master's in military history and my PhD work, even though it's been a little dispersed. And my dissertation is not exactly military history. It's kind of military history-ish. But that's been the main focus of, of much of my coursework and research and everything else. So, And then also it, talking about different kind of backgrounds mesh, meshing. I also have an undergrad in business. I, I got my undergrad in business at Union College way back in 1997. And, I, <laughs> and uh, before the turn of the century. <laughs> but, but no, and I did, uh, I spent... 10 years as an application developer, mainframe application developer, no less. So coding in like COBOL and mm. assembler and, and, you know, really old school stuff that not very many people do anymore. And uh, so I did that for, for 10 years at different places, uh, Speedway, Super America, and uh, Nationwide Insurance, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, those are the three main places that I that I worked and, and as a as a developer and decided that I didn't want to do that anymore after about seven years at, at Chase. So that's what kind of shifted me, okay, what do I want to do? You know, and, and it you know, I'd always had a, a passion for history, so that's kind of seemed like, well, you know, if, if I had my druthers, if I could pick something, you know, it it would be that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I knew that it wouldn't be something that I would make an extraordinary amount of money doing. Right. But I knew that it would be something that I would enjoy. And, uh, and you know, that's at that point in time, especially, that's what, what I wanted more. So that was more important to me than, than making money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, none of us get in this for the money. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, I, you, you said that your dissertation was on something military-related. What was, what was it actually on? It's, my dissertation looks at this uh, right-wing paramilitary group in interwar Austria. Huh? So at, at the end of World War I, between World War I and World War II, okay. I'm looking at what they, it's called the Heimwehr movement or Home Guard movement. And um, it's kind of a collection of all these um, paramilitary groups in the different states of Austria, which are eight states, I believe. So there are eight separate little groups, but then they eventually formed kind of a national front. But it, it was still kind of loosely regional, but they, they put on like a national front. And and they were turned out over time, or rather, I guess rather quickly, they became very political and over time became a, quite a disruptive force in Austrian politics and pushed Austria toward a more fascist bent and that's why, you know, because they, they eventually, I think by, you know, 1929 or 1928, actually, they started getting funds from Mussolini. Um, to they, He was basically funding all of their rallies and everything just to kind of upset the apple cart, trying to push the Austrian government to uh, implement more laws that took Austria in a more farther right direction. And eventually, you know, uh, you, you have... Engelbert Dolphus come to power and he takes, becomes, basically starts ruling by martial law, you know, because parliament dissolves itself, uh, which is kind of an interesting little interlude in history mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of people don't, don't know about, but it, it, which is kind of entertaining, but somehow parliament dissolves itself through parliamentary procedure. It can't, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, it, it, couldn't, it <laughs> couldn't call itself back into order, so he took advantage of that opportunity and said, well, since we have no more parliament, I'm gonna rule by decree. Hmm. And then he basically turns Austria into kind of an authoritarian state, so. Yeah, that's interesting, because, I mean, the, it's, it, it makes sense, obviously, that these other right-wing groups have, 
you know, kind of in operation in, in Austria. I mean, the, the standard story that we always tell about World War II or the interwar period in, in that area is that, you know, there's this guy, Hitler, who <laughs> comes to power, and then he just takes over Austria. <laughs> but you yeah. got to figure there's probably people in Austria that were kind of like-minded, which made it a whole lot easier for him to walk in and just, you know, right. reunite with Austria. So... Right, and, and and there were, I mean, there there were quite a number, obviously, um, that that there were, but you know, at the same time though, they they resisted the Nazis, the Heimwehr did. Oh, okay. yeah, they 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 were they supported Dolphus, they supported that right wing regime against the Nazis from well, nineteen thirty two to nineteen thirty six when they disbanded the Heimwehr. Um, so for for a period in there, they were themselves right wing. They were not so much anti-Semitic. They were kind of what what, especially when you look at Austria, there's political anti-Semitism and then there's racial anti-Semitism. Well, the Nazis were racial anti-Semites, mm-hmm. you know, whereas the Heimwehr were more political anti-Semites. Going back to like uh, Karl Luger basically saying. I'll I'll decide who's a who's a Jew, mm-hmm. you know. Basically, basically saying they they use the moniker more as a derisive term than it really was. Okay, you're actually a Jewish person, you know. Uh, I don't like you, kind of thing. Because mm-hmm. they had Jewish members, they took money from Jewish financiers, you know. So they it was more of a kind of a, like I said, just a means of of you know deriding somebody. So is this more of a nationalistic movement than like fascistic movement it was or? a catholic oh okay a very very well that's what i argue anyway that's is that it was a catholic authoritarianism because if you look at that austria as part of the habsburg history you know you have the, the habsburgs were kind of the self-proclaimed defenders of the church mm-hmm. you know i mean from from the middle ages all the way to its end in 1918 and so the Heimwehr kind of saw themselves as having that. They, they paired very closely. The church supported them, you know. Every single one of their rallies were always on the weekend. They would have Catholic ministers conduct a field mass, hmm. you know. So all the people there would go through mass. You know, they had preachers would, would kind of give speeches in favor of supporting the Heimwehr, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and they were kind of pretty much in lockstep um, the whole way, so it was. It was very. There were there were nationalistic elements to it, but overall, it was more of a uh, of a Catholic authoritarianism. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it was. It was. It was different than than the Nazis. Obviously, it was different than even the, the Italian fascists. You know, it, it had its own little kind of bent to it. So. And are you going to continue researching this topic, or are you going to move on, to, or have you kind of put that aside, like most people do after their dissertations? <laughs> no, I, I've I've put it aside for. I'm hoping to get back to it in January. That's that's kind of where I'm seeing. I want to get back to it because I would I would like to publish it. I think there's there's a lot more there's a lot more cleaning up that I want to do with the manuscript. I think there's a lot more to be said about it. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, there's really not been a whole lot written about it. I mean, there's only a handful of, of people that have written anything substantial on the Heimwehr movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and too, I mean, it's, you, I'm, I try to also place it in the larger European um, context, you know, whereas the Heimwehr was kind of a, an important hub, is, is a, that's what I argue, in, in the middle of Central Europe, because you have Hungary, which was authoritarian, you have the Nazis, which were, you know, fascist authoritarian you have the Italians which were fascist authoritarian type regimes mm-hmm. so they're kind of all around Austria well the Heimwehr was important in connecting all these groups in power in these places and they kind of you know connected through through the Heimwehr and through their efforts you know to get money and to survive and to keep relevance and, and all that kind of thing hmm. that's it that's really interesting well, I look forward to the book. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you've you've had experience with finding opportunities for people coming mm-hmm. out of grad programs and all that. So what yep. what do you have to? Uh, so I think some of the most interesting ones. Well, to be fair, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, which is a state capital, 
So a lot of the conversations and interviews and job opportunities that I've had over the last two years have been sort of in that either nonprofit or governmental worlds that live in a state capital. Right. So it really is sort of, maybe I'd have a different viewpoint if I wasn't here in terms of the kinds of opportunities, but there were great interviews, conversations that I had with politicians, to be on staffs for various in various roles um, in political organizations. I had a couple of interviews at like a research think tank that was fantastic. Um, other nonprofit agencies that lobby in the state capitol or are headquartered here. So there, I think there was a lot of interest in my background from both of those worlds, both nonprofit and also um, the government side. In the end though, I ended up walking away from that quite a bit because in neither place could I still be a historian. Mm-hmm. And I had only recently left my tenure track job and I wanted to finish my book and I wanted to still be a historian. So I kind of decided to put a pause on those things. I know it's there, I think that's great, mm-hmm. but I really wanted to figure out how I could, if there was a way to still be a historian. So some of the things that have come up that are in that world are there are a lot of small historical societies that need executive directors mm-hmm. and they may not pay a lot, but they pay enough to have that be your income, have that be your main income, and the work it could develop into more. It's all in what you make of it. Mm-hmm. So I had one executive director tell me that when she first took over the role, that the board was a mess, the board of trustees was a mess, and the pay was really low. Mm-hmm. But over time, she brought people onto the board that all had the same ideas in terms of development, and she was able to increase her income mm-hmm. over time and create the situation that she wanted. Um, and there are there are a lot of opportunities in public history, in museums, in um, in sort of educational, museum education, and I'm more administrative, like I want to be a leader. So Mm -hmm. I was very drawn to these executive positions of historical societies. That's actually how I found Columbus, was that they didn't, they still don't have one. And I just called up and said, hey, I want to be the executive director. Like, how do I get that (laughs) job? Um, Nice. (laughs) They don't have any money to hire me. But it's, um, you know, I just, I've never been afraid of cold calling and just asking people, just introducing myself. Yeah. So I think those are the main areas. There's also, are several companies nationally that hire freelance consultants to work from home. And for example, I'm thinking of one in out of Atlanta called Heritage Works, W-E-R-K-S. Okay. And they are a digital archiving company that they take from like celebrities or companies or sports um, athletes or any a whole wide range of sources. They take their archival material, they digitize it, then they don't just stop there, they then sell it or they figure out ways to market it or create products that that company or sports team or celebrity or whatever can use to market their brand. Mm. It's sort of like brand management with, but with digital archiving. Mm. And there are a number of these, com- these companies that are growing. There's there's a company out of um, Chicago. There's a company out of Baltimore, somewhere in the Maryland area. There are other organizations, history associates, history makers, you know, that are hiring historians. There's this one company in Chicago that is constantly hiring oral histori- people to do oral history, but mm-hmm. you have to live in Chicago. But there are plenty of I think them I might that have come yeah, them once. yeah. There are plenty of them that you don't need to live where they are. Mm-hmm. So. It just depends on your own personal situation. A lot of people are going to be very happy to take their history degree and go get a nine to five, 52 week a year job doing analysis or doing writing or speech writing or all of these different things. There's tons of opportunities. That's not what I wanted for this particular phase in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe someday I will, but I found that there was enough out there. I can do, I can have three contracts going at once I can bring in indexing work and I can have a different contract that's out of the house and I can have something else that's on the road and that's good for me. Mm -hmm. You said earlier that you weren't interested in doing like the think tanks and all of that because that's not what you conceive of a historian being. I would have taken that job. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there were other ones that you said you kind of walked away yes. from because you weren't as were those because those right. were more like advocate uh, um, not advocate no they like, were advocacy positions oh okay, okay. yeah no and actually I, there's a part of me that really would love to do that but for example I had a, a second interview that I declined for an advocacy role at a um, a housing and homelessness coalition there's there is a person inside of me who absolutely wants to do that every day of the week mm-hmm. but I know that that I just am at a stage right now where my children are and where I am personally that I don't I, I wanted a different schedule. I wanted a different life for myself, okay. and but that, under different circumstances, I would have loved that job. Um, the research associate at the think tank job. I was a finalist with four other candidates. All were PhDs, mm-hmm. and I lost out to someone who just graduated with their PhD in sociology from Wisconsin Madison. Mm-hmm. Great candidate. So I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, that I probably would have worked full time for. Okay. This the company that I've created. It's really busy some weeks, and it's slower other weeks, and those weeks I can do writing. Mm-hmm. I write for various blogs I've published in magazines before. So it's sort of, I don't know, a cobbled together for my life. But there's plenty of opportunities out there, especially if you are excited or looking forward to having... Uh, to be honest, if you are looking for a traditional job that has like benefits and income and set vacation every year, you're golden. There's plenty of people that will hire you. That's well, that's nice to hear. I mean, because as coming out of academia, as I'm sure as you did, and I know you did. I mean, we always hear the doom and gloom about the job market is awful. Yeah, and, no. But I think it's because we are always focused on the teaching angle of it, and that's something else that I think grad programs are really bad at is mm-hmm. pointing out that. There are other employers out there who actually do mm-hmm. want you. Yes, <laughs> because yes. a lot of a lot of well, us they don't they don't teach you they don't tell you how can I pitch my skill set right to someone else right for a different type of job that's not just researching and writing history. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't do that. So you're kind of like at least for me, um, I I felt like I got out. I have a I have these skill sets. These skills I can research. I can write. I can, you know, do this, that, and the other, but I'm like, uh, yeah. How does that translate to right. something else? You know, I, why don't, I don't know what I can do with it. I'm just kind of like right. standing exactly. here, like like a, holding all of like pieces <laughs> and parts of, of something, but I'm like, I don't know how to put this together. But it does yeah. translate, and that's the thing is, I was always trying to teach my history majors when I was teaching at Sacred Heart and even at Capital, like how to market yourself how to take what you do in school or the skills you have and translate those into competitive skills. I wish I had worked with you. Because <laughs> the, the, the thing that we always run into, of course, is that we're being taught by people who are full-time academics. Right. And so they don't have that viewpoint of right. how the world works. There's, they're like, well, I got hired at a research one school. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> and so, we, so, I mean, I did the full-time adjunct thing for a number of years also. And so it's just... but. So, but we feel like that's all we can do, and no one ever really, very few people, well, in my case, none, <laughs> come to me and say, no, you've got all these other opportunities. There's lots of people that would love to have your skills, but we just don't know when. And then there's also, I think, coming out of an academic background, if there's still kind of those psychological hang-up about, oh, I'm abandoning academia, I'm going over to the corporate world or something, and uh, which is kind of a ridiculous idea to have, but right. it is something that I think a lot of people think about coming out of PhD programs and even MA programs. I didn't have a problem leaving academia necessarily. I would still love to be in it. Like if Sacred Heart were in Columbus, I would still be there. Yeah. If Denison hires me full time, I will be there. But I'm not afraid to be outside of academia. Mm-hmm. I am not willing yet to give up being a historian. Right. If there was a full-time job being a historian, I would be that. Like, send yeah. me to the corporation of historians. I'm, I'm happy to join it. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I don't, I'm not afraid of full-time non-academic work. I'm, I'm not willing to not be a historian. Yeah. yeah. And see, I, I would almost, I think, well, I, I shouldn't say I would almost prefer, but some, there's certain parts of me that would prefer almost being like a historian you know, just because I, I, that's what I love, that's what I really enjoy, yeah. being an archive rat and just sitting in the archives and just dealing with, you know. We should just form our own company somehow. I mean, we just have to figure <laughs> it out. Like, I, I don't know. And, but yeah, and, and that's, that's, that's the hard, that was the hardest thing for me. My situation is interesting too, and I think Julie and I share kind of a similar situation here, is we're both kind of here 
because of our spouses. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, right. we're, we're both kind of here against our will. We're just kind of like... <laughs> I'm here with my will. <laughs> and, but yes, because of my spouse. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, because, you know, there are opportunities. You know, I mean, if, and yes. if, if you come out with your master's or doctorate, too, you know, in history, there are a lot of opportunities if you're willing to, if you have, are able to move where yeah. the jobs are. There's jobs there. Right. You can find the jobs. But in, in the situation where you're not, you know, upwardly mobile, where you can just kind of get up and just go wherever, right. um, it, it, it's, you have to be creative. That's when you really have to, and that's kind of what I've been trying to kind of come to terms with and wrap my head around and, okay, this is, this is my reality. How am I going to, how is this, how am I going to make this work? Because I want to be, I want to be a historian. I don't want to be, you know, if I wanted to be work in the private sector in the corporate world, I would just stay to Chase. I would have never left and yeah. I would have found some other thing to do there when they got rid of all the mainframes. Right, right. You know, or whatever, you know. I, but that's, that's not what I wanted, you know. I do think, though, Jason, that for you and I, that's both a blessing and a curse. And that's going to be a way that the listeners are not going to be able to relate necessarily. Not all of them can. Like I am told all the time, well, sure, Julie, you can start your company and pick and choose which contracts you want, but that's because you have the luxury of a husband who has a full-time job and full-time benefits mm. and healthcare and all right. of that. And you have the same with your wife. Right. So it's it's tough because I'm I'm sitting here saying, oh, it's you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But I've also run into historians who are single or are the, expected to be the main breadwinner, and there is a different level of pressure there. Yeah. So you know. It's both a blessing and a curse, right? We're blessed that we don't necessarily have to worry about those very specific and important aspects, but it, it's also a curse that maybe we have too much independence and we right. and we That's, aren't we aren't desperate, we aren't forced to find something. Right. Yeah. Or is, else I would be an advocate for homelessness right now. Yeah. 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 And it's it's um, it does it. It's a weird situation to be in. You're kind of in this nether world. Yeah. I but we're like. also the primary caregivers. Yeah. For our children. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. When you know you have you factor in kids, and and which is I think a big reason why you know we're at least for us, you know, uh, we have we, we have children that are very needs very specific, um, you know, educational environments. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of like we found that, and we're really happy about that, and we're you know, uh, you know when we're willing to to stay for that. You know, stay put and stay where we're at, and mm-hmm. and um, so that's uh, you know that that's a good thing. But uh, you know, at the same time, though, it's it's kind of it's one of those things. I'm you know, you just work through. I'm I'm working through it kind of mm-hmm. mentally because I, I feel like well, if I take a job that's not a history job, and then I feel like well, what did you just do all for this last eight years of right. your life? Yeah. What what was that for? Right. You know, why did you drag your family to Mississippi for <laughs> five and a half years? <laughs> right. You know, and and you know, accumulate all this student loan debt mm-hmm. in order, and then not do that. You know, it's it, that's that's hard to reconcile. That's hard to mm-hmm. uh, make peace with, and and that's and and I'm not. I'm one of those. I'm not. I fight that kind of stuff anyway, just in my head. I'm I'm just, I'm stubborn in that way, mm. <laughs> so it, it makes it even harder sometimes. But but at the same time, you know, it's it, it forces you to be creative, I think, and be resourceful and think about okay, well, what, how can I do this, you know? Mm-hmm. And luckily for me, I, in, in some regards, I in some ways I'm patient, but in other ways I'm not so patient. And it's it's kind of it's kind of weird to say that, but I'm willing to wait. In the long term, knowing that okay, if I if I kind of not keep knocking on the door, eventually somebody's going to let me in, right, <laughs> right, kind of thing. But at the same time, I'm like, but when are you going to let me in? You know, yeah. right, let me in now. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I know the the feeling. I I since I went to grad school here at OSU, I dragged my family here <laughs> for it, and so I feel I felt that type of pressure too. Luckily, my wife found it. A full-time job while she was here too, so we were able to kind of mooch off that for a while. But, yeah. but still, it's it, you still have that feeling that okay, I, I need to do something with this degree that I just spent umpteen thousand dollars on. Sacrifice and, for right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I just lost six years of my life doing this or whatever mm-hmm. it was. So I wanted to make sure I would do with it. All right. Well, great. Well, so let's 
hear a little bit about the World War One exhibit here. So obviously you've made a bunch of connections, but how did how did all of this come about? Uh, I joined the board of the Columbus Historical Society in June of 2017 because I was trying to get to know the organization, um, see what what was going on with it. And they started talking about one day um, upcoming exhibits. They wanted to put together like a three-year exhibit schedule type of thing. And it was right around the time, later that summer, when all of the riots were happening about Confederate monuments. Charlottesville mm. happened. And, you know, that was, as a Civil War historian, that was weighing a lot on my mind. I had written a few blog posts about it and other things. And um, so I was really thinking about Confederate monuments and that whole con controversy nationally. And I knew that the 100th anniversary of the World War One, the armistice of World War One, was coming up in twenty in nineteen in twenty eighteen, and so I said, "What about if we do a World War One exhibit?" But instead of doing like Columbus during the war, you know what was happening in Columbus during the war? That's like any city. Just take out Columbus, plug in any city. This is what they're doing. I know someone who did that for right. a place for Manchester, New Hampshire. Right. <laughs> yeah. I said, "What about if we do post-war? What about if we do the construction of memory?" Hmm. The construction of memory is a really hot topic in the Civil War. It has been for a while now. It still is. And yeah, with World War One too. Yeah. So I said, well, let's do the construction of memory and look at, and look at the post-war world. So I wrote a grant to Ohio Humanities Council. Received that grant in February of 2018. I don't know when you signed up. March. March. Okay. So yeah. I guess we announced the program, and Jason somehow found it through the website. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I found because I was kind of doing, you know, doing the networking, not networking, but I was just looking around and okay, where are yeah. all the different kind of historical, you know, because I, as it's funny because I had been in Columbus since back in Columbus since 2014, but I was writing my dissertation, working, and so I just kind of yeah. had my head down and so so when I was done, okay, now I'm going to start looking around. I got to meet people, so I, and I saw so, okay, Columbus Historical Society. What do they have going on? And then I found the program. It's, yeah that uh, must have just been up for just like a few weeks. It was very, very soon at, thereafter. So the, we got the grant, then we announced the program. It was at the time listed as three events and four exhibits. Mm -hmm. It has now grown to nine exhibits and seven events. Wow. And so Jason came on board, um, and then we put together a research team of people who were willing to help us. And between March and mid-July, we did all of the research. That research team, by the way, included three summer interns, two from Ohio State and one from Capitol. How did you find these people? Did you just advertise, or did you get in touch with those universities? Uh, we got in touch with the universities. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I said, did you know the one who, who is from Capitol? Yeah, he was my student at Capitol, okay. but he applied for this without knowing I was the person oh, in charge. Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty so cool. So then I sent him an email, and I said, do you realize this is my project? And he uh, had no idea that it was me. Nice. Awesome. Um, so... Anyway, we ended up putting this research team together, and I would say March, April, it was pretty slow. I mean, Jason and I were both still finishing up other teaching responsibilities, but in May, we, May and June, we were all, every day. I mean, it was just constant research, research, pulling in everything that people could bring in terms of information, and then we set a hard and fast deadline for July 15th to accumulate everything and stop at that moment. Because you know, with any research project, you can just keep going forever. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So you gotta stop sometimes. We said, like, okay, we're just gonna stop. Here. Yeah, on July right. 15th. And then we started at the end of July building the actual exhibit panels and laying out the design and working with a printing company to print everything. But it was so much work and it was <laughs> so hard and it was way more just way more than we thought it was going to be. We were still hanging exhibit panels and assembling things the morning of the opening. Well, that's a really fast turnaround. I know. To have and the idea in, what, February, March, and then the opening was... What, August, August 30th. Yeah. Yes, so. and we actually had a meeting. When was that meeting? We went down to that bar with the other people, and we picked the color scheme. Was that, right. like, the end of July? <laughs> yeah. We picked the color scheme right. at this meeting at wow. a tavern, the end of July, and this... This one of the people on the board who came to the meeting, she has a museum studies degree. That's the other thing. Jason and I have no museum experience, okay. none whatsoever. We have no public history background. We have no museum <laughs> experience. So we were both, both like, okay, well, how do we even do this? So we met with two people on the board who have museum studies degrees, and they both sort of said to us on the way out, like, 
this is too much to do. <laughs> this is not going to happen. Um, but it's done. And I mean, it was... Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 was, I, I knew it would happen. I just didn't know to what, how that, how that for, how it would look. You know what I'm saying? It, I didn't know if it was. I, I didn't know if it was going to turn out the way it turned out. I mean, mm-hmm. it turned out. I think we're. I'm really satisfied with. It. I think you are too with the way everything um, kind of came together. But you know, we didn't. We didn't know. <laughs> there wasn't a, a far from a certainty when at that point when we just kind of realized. You know, because they were throwing out all these. Oh, we could use this software and that software mm-hmm. that neither of us knew anything about. And then I I downloaded kind of like a free version of one of them just just to see what can I do with this and I just looked at it and it, it looked it reminded me like of a, a airplane like a big 747 like the controls like all these little dot these things over here I'm like no there was I, no way the learning curve on these <laughs> softwares they were suggesting first of all the softwares were thousands of dollars mm-hmm. and these are like you know graphic design and and really high-end software I don't know how to use any of that so we ended up using PowerPoint and figuring out that in PowerPoint, you can customize the slide size to any size you want. And then if you export it to a PDF, boom, you have an exhibit panel. So nice. they printed them for <laughs> PDFs at the printing shop. Mm. And they're all the, we use the same color scheme throughout, mm-hmm. again, picked by our museum people. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I can see that. I mean, if you're doing this as a PowerPoint, I can see that, yeah, you come up with the border and the background colors and the yeah. designs with the stripes and stuff. And it, it makes sense. You just copy that from slide to slide. Yeah, we had one that's, template. That's really, yeah. I, I've used PowerPoint as kind of workarounds for graphic design stuff, too. So yep. I, I know how that, <laughs> how that works, yep. but it, I've never seen... A PowerPoint slide, you know, printed out like this because this, I think this does look really good. And um, so on these, it's on all the these panels here, um, best fake exhibit ever. <laughs> <I guess>. <laughs> <laughs> and there, like, don't get me wrong, Jason and I are so proud, so proud. But there are a million things I would do differently yeah. if I could start from the beginning. There just yeah. are. But that's with any project you do. Right. Yeah, and like you said, if you don't have any background doing this stuff, then, right? Yeah, the first time you do it is going to be very yes. thrown together. <laughs> well, you can, you're going to kind of default to, okay, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. And right. How can I kind of smash these together or make these work together? And, right. You know, and that's kind of what we just did. It was just kind of a, you know, just like a little, I don't know, it reminds me of like the little chain of monkeys where you just kind of hang yes. one monkey on the other uh-huh. until it's right. finished and you're like. <laughs> I, had, I had a vision. Like I could see it in my head, right, what it could look like. Mm-hmm. But I had absolutely no idea if we could achieve it. So, so when you're when you're putting all these panels together, first off, where did all of the images come from? Columbus was it from part of this collections here at the Historical no. Society, or where did you actually find all of these things? A lot of them were taken by people on our research team, like actually went out into the community and took photographs. Oh, okay. Some of them were donated by specific organizations themselves, like for the Defense Supply Center Columbus. I went and met with them, and all of the pictures on the Defense Supply Center Columbus exhibit are from, they gave me a CD of photographs from their archive. Oh, okay. Everything that's related to Jeffrey Manufacturing, I received from the Jeffrey company themselves directly. So we, Jason did a much better job than I did, but of um, like labeling where things came from. Somehow in the rush to get it done at the end, I just skipped that step. Yeah, I mean, I tried to, a lot, a lot of like Ohio Memory has a gob of photos. You oh, know? yeah. So I used a lot from, from Ohio Memory um, where it was, where I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, some of it was like, some of it's just uh, archival documents that, that we got a good enough photo yeah. of that we could use and, um, the Ohio Memory, is that an um, electronic database done through the state? Yeah, well, Ohio History Connection. In oh. the Columbus Metropolitan Library, right? Or no? Is it? I don't, it could oh, be I as know. possible. I, it's, it might be more of a kind of a partnership of several places. It's, yeah. it, it could possibly okay. be. I, I, I don't know, quite honestly. Hmm. Uh, but they have a, just a huge database of, of documents, too. Documents, mm-hmm. pictures, and, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of one of the things that I did was as we we're looking through some of these things and we got to the point where okay let's stop researching now we got to put together these panels mm-hmm. I was like okay well I don't have like any pictures you know I have you know nobody wants to use a big giant panel of text <laughs> you know I can read a book for that right? yeah right. so I, I had to kind of find from different places 
you know some of the some of those kind of pictures to bring some of that to life at least do a photo if nothing else and then you know and found some some pretty interesting stuff so, and the team of researchers is it well all the text on all the panels was that written by this the entire team or by just by you two or it was by the two of us some of the interns contributed some text but we would have to edit what they mm -hmm. wrote um, there was one researcher in particular, there was an exhibit in the other room that has to do with Broad Street Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. He sent me a 12-page Word document that I then mm -hmm. had to condense down into one, you know, three by five foot panel. Right. So it was that type of thing, right? So yeah. the researchers did, like, these are volunteers, all volunteers. Mm -hmm. Like, the, the, we ended up doing a whole um, alcove exhibit on World War One background, and a retired Ohio State professor did all of that. But again, he gave me enough for an entire book and it's like trying to yeah. bring it down. That, that was another thing that we learned, you know, yeah. is is that, you know, of all the stuff that we, all the research that we did, everything we found, this exhibit is probably like 10%. Yeah. You know. Oh, yeah. I, I, it drove I, the I, interns yeah. crazy. The summer yeah. interns were so frustrated because they would do all of this work mm -hmm. and then Jason and I would cut out like <laughs> most of it. <laughs> did you guys have a plan for... I mean, well, I guess not, since you said they kind of expanded me up beyond your original conception of it, but did you guys have a sense of, you know, we want to have 20 panels that we're going to fill, or did you even have any kind of sense of how many of these things you were going to do, or was it just kind of growing as you... Well, I think we just kind of winged it as we went along, and, and, and too, as we kind of got an idea of the space, when we started looking at the building, it's... Okay, we, this is as as a space to put stuff on the walls. Yeah, I think it, it started to take a little more shape, um, you know. And then we started, you know, to see the size of these. Um, I'm not sure. What, I don't know, what like you carpet panels. Car yeah, the carpet yeah. panel things. They're like backer boards or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know <laughs> seeing the size of those, like okay, you know, it kind of helps you. Okay, this is the size. This is what how much space we have to work. But with. we usually we literally took blue painters tape. Yeah, and outlined on the walls and on the boards like what size we wanted and then we would take a measuring tape and measure that and then create the panel to fit the space oh, okay so we knew there was going to be two exhibits in this room and originally two in that room we ended up putting three in the first room okay um so we definitely knew for the organization but until the rooms were emptied because there were other things in these rooms before we started i couldn't like see it yeah. we had to there was one day august 2nd we just emptied both rooms out so there was nothing. And then when it was a blank canvas, we could finally start to lay it out a little bit. Mm -hmm. This still isn't anything like what we thought it would be. but Yeah, I bet it would be difficult to come into just an empty room and try to figure out <laughs> where is everything going to go. And Yeah, I mean, yeah. we had a kind of a, well, at least after we talked about it, we've, we've figured out kind of a general sense just by the flow of the rooms. Like, you know, here you come in the door and how are we going to go right. snake around the room? You know what I'm saying? What makes sense as an exhibit for someone to go through? So eventually we kind of figured, okay, well, this will be this topic here and this will be, we'll talk about this over here. And then it just slowly, I think over time, just started to take form the more we kind of stared at it. And the one thing that Jason and I were really insistent upon was having a narrative arc. So mm -hmm. a lot of times when you go to see an exhibit, it's just a collection of stuff, but there's no story. Right. Yeah. So we made sure that, you know, in part in the first room, it's like chronological. It goes through the background of the war and then the armistice and the reaction and the parades when the soldiers came home and then the building of monuments. This room comes into the veterans and their post-war lives. And then we talk about, we right. end it with the permanent changes to the city landscape. Okay. So it has both a chronological and topical, but also a narrative you know that we're telling we're really really trying to tell a story mm. and so that was something that was really important to both of us since we're both sort of narrative historians that way right and so you mentioned that there were a couple of people on the board that have museum studies backgrounds and just by coincidence over the last couple of months with Southern New Hampshire University put on this symposium a couple of weeks ago on kind of the current state of museum studies and all of that and so I never knew anything about it either until this happened, and I kind of got this crash course on it and all of that. But one of the, some of the big thing, big topics in museum studies or museology, as they called it outside of the U.S., because we had international people involved. But some of the big things are all about like crowd flow and yeah. you know getting people to, from one point to another and telling a consistent, coherent story. So um, was this something that you guys were just doing on your own, or did you said you had a couple of museum studies folks on the board, were they also kind of bringing some of that stuff into it? 
No? Okay. <laughs> no, no, I mean, well, and for, for us, you know, I think that's what, seeing some of the other exhibits, especially, it's, it's harder at, at, you know, local history level because you have volunteers right. who have different interests, and what you have is they kind of take all their different interests and smash it together, and then you have just kind of a smattering of, here's this kind of story, this story about this person, this is kind of interesting, this is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. you, you get a lot of, it's overwhelming, you get a lot of little stories, but you still don't get a sense for the main, like, like Julie said, the main overarching narrative. What, what was really happening, Right. you know? I think some of the cha most challenging parts is Jason and I wrote introductory panels to each of the exhibits that laid out the argument, right? Like, again, we're researchers, like, we have to have an argument. We have to have a purpose. We have to, the historiography. Yeah, we <laughs> have to, like, tell people why they're there and why it's important. We explained historical significance. We asked questions. Mm -hmm. And writing those introductory panels was often more challenging than because you have to sort of bring together all of these disparate mm -hmm. points. And I, and I so badly wanted people to walk out of here feeling like they didn't just come to see stuff, but they but they, they have something to think about now. Mm -hmm. I, I, and, I, and I honestly wanted them to leave thinking, A, I've never thought about that before, and B, how, I was hoping it would help frame conversations they were having about other topics going on in our country right now. Okay. And that's yep. really just like jiggle the brain a little bit. Mm -hmm. So what are you, so what connections do you see between what's happening here versus what's happening in the rest of the country? What were you hoping people would walk away talking about specifically? Because I think that's so that's a goal that you know every historian has is we want to try to get mm -hmm. this get people thinking about it f going forward. Right. So in your own mind, what are you thinking? Are the connections between? I'm not going to speak for Jason. He can say that himself. But for me, it was important as a Civil War historian to get people to understand that the Civil War is not the only war nor is Vietnam, right? Those are the two main ones you think about when you think about monuments mm -hmm. that are, have been memorialized. And specifically in Columbus, World War I monuments are missing. They are in storage. They have been destroyed. They have been taken down and altered, moved over time. Why aren't people rioting in the streets about this? Mm -hmm. Why is it that no one has any idea where Columbus's World War I monuments are? Why is it that no one is very concerned that right now there is a massive World War I monument in boxes in a warehouse on Ohio State's campus where we can't find a home for it and no one wants it? And hmm. it may well not be there in another year. And I'm not saying because someone's going to take it like, and put it in somewhere. So I, I think that my issue is that people are spending a lot of time and sweat and tears and anger and blood and death to fight over Confederate monuments when they don't understand why those monuments were put up in the first place, who paid for them, who constructed them, the message that was given around them, and what they have come to symbolize over time. They're getting all worked up about that, but there were also these soldiers who fought in Europe in World War I who, do they deserve to be remembered? How do they deserve to be honored? Shouldn't we have a conversation as a community about how veterans or how wars should be memorialized in general, and then apply that same standard to all wars and all veterans? rather than picking and choosing which ones are important. That makes sense. Here, here. Yeah, no, and that that was learning about, you know, kind of kind of jumping into this after it had already started a little bit, but when we met um, and then learning more about like uh, the, the the rotunda panels and stuff, this is what I'm talking about. There was a World War One or or these big bronze panels in the rotunda, it's it was Sullivan Hall. Mm -hmm. That Ohio State took down. I'm not sure how in many, 2012. Okay, yeah. They, they, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing those at that at, yeah. at Sullivan. They're in boxes. Are they? Yeah, yeah. they took them down, so they're just sitting there. And and so many of other, you know, we, we we tried to find all these other like bronze plaques that had the name of names of all of the the dead from Columbus in World War One. I. I mean, I don't know how many months we called <laughs> we around. Searched, searched, and searched. Yeah, and people called around. You know, Julie and and several other board members called around to this this. Well, try the, these people in the county, call the county, call the city, call, you know, just uh, we're all over the place trying to find, locate this panel hmm. that has gone missing, you know, and then, and then with between that and the, you know, the, the stuff from Ohio State, it's just, it's kind of like, what in the world, you know, it, all this, all these things that 
otherwise and under normal circumstances would be considered sacred mm -hmm. you know or just kind of boxed up and just and I think you know part of it obviously is the historicization of World War One you know after that generation dies off people stop caring as much yeah you know that's that's what you're seeing that's what you're gonna see uh, you know with with World War Two eventually in the next 20 years where some of these, and, and you know, there's been a lot of debate on, on Holocaust studies about that, about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. People are dying off. That's becoming historicized, and, and people are concerned that once it becomes historicized, then it loses some of its bite in terms of what that really looked like and what the effects of that really were in terms of it, it loses its visceral kind of, yeah, we're not living with it anymore. Right, right, because mm -hmm. all the people that were a part of it are dead. Mm -hmm. And then they become a memory. Right, and then so you're, you're kind of, once once you have that detachment, I think what this what this exhibit shows, I think, is once you reach that threshold, in a lot of cases, you know, of course, the Civil War is a really interesting anomaly because it's it's different. Yeah, I was just, uh, it's, what I was just thinking is it's weird, it's weird that Civil War is kind of, yeah. kind of come back to life in a way that and who knows if maybe we're which is kind of interesting too because it really says that even though the people are dead you know the conflict itself isn't dead right yeah in, 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 well, in no, more the, ways than the more. memory of the conflict keeps shifting right and right. communities choose what to keep in the limelight and what to bury what storylines to bury and which ones to continue to argue about right mm -hmm. and and there's no conversation about World War One I. I mean there was no national commission for the hundredth anniversary there was not, you know, a, a, a large national push for any sort of memorialization. And we still don't have a national World War I monument. There is, Kansas City would like to believe that theirs is the national, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. And there isn't something in Washington, D.C. And, you know, there's just not being, and a lot being done on the local stage at all, mm -hmm. or statewide. I mean, Ohio Humanities Council received a fair number of proposals, but nothing like they've seen for other major topics that have come and gone. Yeah, and I'm thinking back to like, <clears throat> back in like 2011, there was a huge, you know, everyone was talking about the 150th anniversary of the start of the Civil War. Right. But yeah, the in 2014, yes. you know, I mean, I'm in, since I'm in, I travel in historian circles, right. sure, there were articles, AHA or something had one on like the, the beginning of the war or something in commemoration of the 100th anniversary, but there was nothing in the like you said, it's kind of in the popular press or anything like like there was with the 150th of the Civil mm -hmm. War. No, the dispatch, the Columbus Dispatch has done a pretty good job of trying to mark some of these occasions with stories, um, but you know it's it's largely been silent, and and that's something that we need to have a conversation about. Well, and it's it's interesting too because in doing this research and looking at the newspapers like in Columbus and looking at the the language that they used in 1918. I mean, the fact that the United States was involved in this conflict, and the fact that they were played a, kind of a decisive role in the end. You know, it was that final push, and, and the Meuse Argonne or whatever that kind of finally made the Germans just say, "Forget it, it's it's done." Right. You know, that was that was important. People realized that. The United, this for the first time ever, the United States on a nat, on an international level was kind of at the apex of, of everything. They they were the center of of the world's attention. U.S. troops, United States as as a country, and I people realized that and they were excited about it. You know, they were excited that you know they they were like, oh wow, these troops are doing this. Our boys are doing this. This is really exciting. I mean, you look at the language and, and like I said in the newspapers and the magazines and stuff of the time. It's a big deal. It was the war to end all wars. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was. And now it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, World War I. Oh, let's I don't really that. know much about that. Yeah. yeah. But World War Two, I can, you know. Yeah. And well, yeah, and I wonder if that's part of it is that it's, it's seen as kind of, from an American perspective, it's kind of like World War Two happened. Obviously, World War One didn't stick. <laughs> the results of World War One didn't stick. And so... Yeah. So yeah, while so while we went in in World War One, and you know, both sides were teetering, we went in and knocked one side over and finished it off, and so you know we fixed Europe, and then the you Europeans you went and screwed it all up again a few years later. So I wonder, if, I don't know if that plays into it or not, but it's I can imagine that's 
I think there was just such disillusionment about World War One so quickly. I mean, from the fight over the treaty and when Wilson and League of Nations. I mean, it just really, it just all went downhill so fast. And then you, it was overshadowed by the Great Depression and everything yeah. else. And it just, it, I understand, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be discussing it. Right. That makes sense. All right, and so you've mentioned that you've, you're kind of hoping that that's the type of thing that people take away from this exhibit. Um, is there anything else you hope people take away from it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean I think it's kind of a two-fold thing, you know, what we talked about just just the war in general, um, and and how significant World War One was, and the fact that it, it was important to the United States, to the citizens of the United States, especially. You know, this, they were in kind of uncharted territory here, and, and, and getting involved in World War One, and playing or thinking they're playing a very big role in, and feeling like that. But that the, so there's that element of it that it was important at the time, and then there's also the memorialization part of it, the more contemporary right now, is that we've just kind of discarded this war to a certain extent. It's it's kind of a distant thing that we don't necessarily know much about aren't really interested in knowing much about and you know because it is messy it's not it's not a very simple black and white good versus evil type of you know thing that was constructed in World War II that was easily digestible and there it is you know we have our, our you know our, our narrative this is what we're going with where World War One, you know there's plenty enough blame to go around for everyone everyone screwed up and nobody likes that situation. Nobody wants right. to. Let's not talk about that. Right. <laughs> no. Let's yeah. go. Let's talk about something else. Right. I think the other main thing that we'd like people to take away from this is that there are there are parts of Columbus that we can tie directly to World War One. There are parts of Columbus's development that we can tie directly to World War One. And I want people to walk into the city landscape portion and look around and say, oh, I didn't know that that street name used to be something else before it was changed because it was a German name. And now they've changed it to some sort of American name. I didn't know that those two dorms on Ohio State's campus were named after World War One veterans who died. I didn't know that. You know, I mean, I, I want them also to walk away with a piece of Columbus history and mm -hmm. to understand more about the city in which they live. Yeah, and I think that's, a a good goal also because historians and then also just kind of the history-minded general public we always tend to focus on kind of the big national things right. and I, I I like the idea that we're trying to get people to kind of realize history is local also it's not just national there's stuff happening you know this city exists because of things that happen obviously yeah, this city's right. here for a reason right. it looks the way it does for a reason that's one of the things that I often try to push my students to do, like when I'm doing capstone projects or MA theses or whatever. I'm trying, I, I always try to push students toward, who always want to talk about the Civil War. They want to talk about the glory of the Civil War. And I'm always pushing them, well, okay, but let's think, think you know, think local. <laughs> what happened in your town, your county, maybe your state, even that's probably too big, but think small. How did it affect what, because every, Every event in American history affects everybody on the ground. It affects at the local level too, and mm -hmm. so I think it's great that this is kind of emphasizing the local perspective because I think that does get lost a lot. From and it's also emphasizing the consequences of a war that are beyond the returning soldiers coming home mm -hmm. and returning to their dinner table. Right? It, there are consequences that go on long after that, and the part of this exhibit on the veterans' post-war life that Jason did really emphasizes that. So I mean, I think you know. It just it really shows people that you can't sign an armistice and be done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much. No, thank you. Uh, this was this was this was great. And thank you all for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, as always, send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail .com. For Jason Engel and Julie Moich, I am Rob Denning. Our next episode will come out the week after Thanksgiving, so I hope you have a happy start to the holiday season. Take care, everybody.